Welcome to the FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. Hello and welcome to this passionate about food and drink podcast from the Food and Drink Federation. My name is Tim Rycroft. I'm Chief Operating Officer at FDF and I'm joined today by my friend and my boss, our Chief Executive, Ian Wright. Hello, Ian. Hello, Tim. So I'm going to begin today uh, by wishing one of our most loyal listeners uh, a happy birthday. It's my mum. She's 87 today, and I know she'll be thrilled to get a shout out on our podcast. So moving on from the personal news, yesterday, Ian, you had a very interesting day uh, relating uh, in a number of ways to COVID-19. And I think it would be really interesting uh, to spend a little bit of time talking about that. So you were in the London area visiting a big food factory, uh, household name. And this is a company that has been very much at the leading edge of adopting the mass testing for food and drink manufacturing using the lateral flow tests. Indeed, I think they've been something of a, of a pilot site, really. And you were there yesterday uh, to observe testing, how, it's, how it works, um, what people think of it, how it's, uh, what the bumps in the road have been along the way. And I think it'd be really interesting if you could just spend a bit of time reflecting on what you saw, what you thought, uh, and maybe you could begin by reminding our listeners why we think mass testing of this kind is a really important thing for food and drink manufacturers to adopt. Absolutely. And first of all, let me say a very happy birthday to Tim's mum. Uh, many happy returns, uh, who I've met uh, on a number of occasions. So very happy birthday, uh, Mrs. Rycroft. Uh, so I think uh, I, I, I think I can say that it was the Tate and Isle refinery at uh, Newham, uh, at Silvertown in the East End, um, and uh, it is a very very iconic site. It's been the place to which sugar has been, uh, from which sugar, or at which sugar has been imported into the UK for over 130 years. It's a very, very um, large industrial site. And for those who may be not entirely familiar with London, if you fly into City Airport, or when, when we were allowed to fly into City Airport, or fly out of City Airport indeed, you come in uh, or leave over the river, and you can see on the south side of the river, although it does look at that point the river is going north-south uh, a bit, so it does look as though you're going, uh, it's, 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 the, the dome is on the south side of the river, and the uh, refinery is the big industrial site opposite it. And interestingly, and I didn't know this, and uh, my host, um, the incomparable, Gerald Mason, who's uh, chair of our Brexit committee, as well as being a very, very senior member of FDF. Gerald was telling me that, that Mr. Tate and Mr. Lyle used to compete against each other and both had their uh, London bases uh, on that stretch of river because presumably that's where you could import sugar. And they merged in the 19th century. But uh, it is a very, very large site. And they're, in fact, the site is now broken up. So there's a big a big factory and a big process, a big plant uh, and a much smaller plant. And I was able to see both. So I've been able to make a bit of a judgment on the uh, on the relative uh, difficulty and importance of testing both in a large scale uh, factory and or plant and in a small scale factory where there are you know fewer than 50 people probably. Uh, and I would say, first of all, that it's a really important part of the fight against COVID-19. 
uh, it's really important because for quite a long time still, despite the fantastic success of the vaccination program, which we'll be talking about in a minute, um, not everybody is going to be vaccinated anytime soon. And in the period, and indeed some people won't be vaccinated at all, I suspect. And in that uh, period between the vaccination being rolled out and reaching critical mass of vaccinations, testing is going to be critical to be able to keep the spread of the disease and its variants uh, under containment. And it's also really important, I think, for employers to know uh, that their people are okay. And one of the things that I, had, I was struck by in the conversations yesterday was how much peace of mind the testing program has brought to the management. Because before the testing program, there was always the fear that there would be an outbreak and that it could take the factory uh, down or it could take the factory a lot of trouble and difficulty to recover or to reorganize as a consequence of the outbreak. And it could strike suddenly. And what the testing program does, if you test your, your staff or 60, 70, 80% of your staff over a two or three day period in any one week, it does mean that you have the capacity to, to be able to predict what's going to happen. You can control any outbreak that does happen. You can do more testing on the staff if the outbreak does happen. Um, and it gives you control and predictability in a, in a world where there uncertainty is the biggest enemy. So I was very impressed. And this is particularly, I think, about identifying people who are asymptomatic, but who actually do have the virus. Yes, you would hope that the people who got symptoms would uh, would um, make themselves known and, and self-isolate. And indeed, I think that is everybody's responsibility. But the, the issue of asymptomatic people has been a, a constant concern to the government and to everybody, I think over the last uh, uh, year. And what this does do is, is identify the vast majority of the asymptomatic uh, sufferers, if that's what they are, and allow you to make an intervention that they go home, they, they, um, they recover from the symptoms, they test again to check that they are uh, now free of the virus. And it, it, it's an extremely helpful way of making that all happen. So perhaps you could tell us uh, where the testing takes place, uh, who does the testing, what, what kind of particularly special arrangements have had to be made in order for the testing programme to be put in place? Well, as I say, I saw two different uh, versions of this. I saw a large-scale version and a small-scale version. So the large-scale version uh, is six... Uh, there are six booths and six people can be tested at once. They, um, the, the, the testing is undertaken uh, with the assistance of uh, four, five or six, depending on the size of the uh, shift that's being tested, four, five or six assistants and uh, colleagues who are agency staff, properly trained, brought in specifically for the purpose. Uh, and those, uh, those people do, you are, uh, let me take you through the day, the, the morning that I had. So at the start, imagine I was at the start of my shift. Uh, I would go to a room uh, set aside for the purpose, all properly socially distanced, all organised in a flow of people. Uh, I would go and uh, indicate to the reception staff that I was there to be tested. They would give me a barcode that would, uh, on a label, 
So the barcode, and I, so you scan the barcode and with your phone, and that takes you to the NHS website where you can record your details. Uh, you fill in an NHS uh, questionnaire. I believe you can create an account which uh, gets you past some of the detail of the NHS questionnaire. You fill the form in online on your phone, or indeed you could do it, I imagine, on your iPad. And then you wait to be called to the, uh, to the test room. You move from the waiting room, probably socially distanced, to the test room, uh, where you go to a booth, private booth, where the tester can see into the booth through a, a, a window in the booth, but no one else can. Um, and then in the test, you take they give you a swab, a bit like a Johnson's cotton bud, but a bit longer and a bit smaller um, and slightly more compressed, sort of at the end with the, with the, the cotton bit. And um, then you get to the bit which is uh, the actual test, so you use the the swab the uh, cotton bud to swab your the back of your throat, um, and then your nose, and then under the under the instruction of the tester. Although obviously, if you're doing this regularly, you get to know how to do it. You hand the swab back to the tester, who then t you conducts the test. It's put into a saline solution with a an indicator, a bit like a pregnancy indicator, with a little bar. And 20 minutes later, you get emailed the result uh, of the test. And if you are negative, you you are able to continue working. And if you're positive, you are uh, sent home uh, to uh, self-isolate and to report any contact you have via NHS trust, test and trace. It's incredibly efficient. Um, now, there are some costs to this. So uh, I reckon, and, and these aren't necessarily the figures from... Tate and Lyle, which I saw, uh, but you do need to, you need to, uh, first of all, you get the test kits and the handbook from, uh, from uh, NHS test and, uh, I think it's called NHS test and trace anyway. The NHS provides the, the test kits uh, free. Uh, you, they come 25 in a box, I can tell you. Um, you, and they will train the testers for you. Uh, you need to provide the testers and obviously there's a cost to them. You need to provide the rooms for the testing. That's to say you need the place where the room where people will wait and register, and then you need the room where the, uh, where the booths stand. You'll need to construct the booths, and you need to, uh, you need to record all of this with the, and schedule all of this. And I think the scheduling of people from individual shifts is probably the most onerous part for the business, though there is obviously a cost to the staff who supervise both the registration and the testing and uh, that cost is not trivial and I suppose you could bear that cost from your existing staff although my suspicion is that it's far better if you use trained agency staff who are only focusing on the delivery of the of the testing regime and that basically is one person or two people doing the reception and one person or more doing the supervision of the tests of the of the actual swabbing and the tests themselves and in the smaller uh, setup, uh, you need fewer people. So uh, the other factory, which I think has 50 or 60 people, they test uh, two at a time and they only need one or two staff to supervise. And it's, it's, it's a smaller scale operation, but they still have the booths 
and they still go through all the processes I've just described. Fantastic, that's fascinating. So at this point, I should say uh, two, two things of interest. Um, if you're listening to us before Monday the 15th of February, there is an FDF uh, joint webinar with the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA, on this issue of workforce testing. It's at three o'clock on Monday the 15th, uh, and you can uh, register for it and find out more information on the FDF website. I should also say in relation to the point you made in about agency staff that FDF members can get a discount uh, that we've negotiated with the provider Reed. Uh, and if anyone is interested in talking to Reed about how Reed can support them with mass testing, the email address there is matthew.rushton, R-U-S-H-T-O-N, at reed, R-W-E-D.com. And uh, Matthew will be able to tell you what they can provide and will also uh, be able to, to offer you the FDF member discount. So I'm going to move on now because you also had another interesting COVID experience yesterday, which is that you have had the first dose of vaccine. And I ought to be clear for our listeners this, that this isn't as a result of your great age, uh, but because you are clinically vulnerable um, as a cancer survivor and, uh, and as asthmatic. Um, but I'd be fascinated to know how your experience of that was. Well, I, I think describing me as a cancer survivor is, is a bit, uh, you know, yes, I did have cancer, but it was relatively cancer-like for me. So uh, I wasn't somebody who, who bravely battled against cancer. Uh, 13 years ago, I, I had a, a brief uh, skirmish with it, which uh, ended in a, a relatively satisfactory score draw. Um, so uh, I was called for... It, it, I mean, I think everybody's experience is probably different because of the way that it's organised. But I was called for, um, I was asked if I would like to take the, uh, to have the vaccine, I think on Monday of this week or maybe Tuesday. I got a text uh, offering me a chance to go to a website. I went to the website. I was able to book for yesterday, which was Thursday uh, at 5.40. Um, and uh, I rocked up at the local County Hall, where they're doing the test, we parked our car. Um, we were very securely marshaled. I think there were probably three or four marshals to guide us to the rooms where the uh, vaccine was being administered. Uh, interestingly, the marshals were all men. Uh, and when we got into the uh, actual test uh, uh, vaccine facility, everybody involved was a woman. Uh, I don't know if that's standard or, but it was quite an interesting experience. So we were registered, uh, I was registered, I had to give my name, I had to give my, I didn't even have to give my NHS number, which I'd specially gone and found out. Uh, you only have to give your name and your date of birth. Um, you go, for, in this case, you went from there straight to a, a waiting area where, in fact, I didn't have to wait. So I was moved straight to one of four tables where there were um, uh, staff ready and available to do the vaccination and somebody taking the records. I had quite a detailed conversation with them both about my uh, allergy. I'm allergic, to, I'm anaphylactic, I'm allergic to nuts. And those who are anaphylactic are not advised. I believe this is true, not clinicians. So, you know, this isn't proper medical advice, but I'm under the impression that I wasn't able to have the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, but anyway, I was being offered the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. Um, there was a bit of a discussion about my uh, wussy-like phobia of needles. Um, the one record of the cancer that still lives with me is the number of blood tests, injections and chemotherapy. 
which I absolutely hated um, in terms of the needles bit. Um, I had, but this was a brilliant experience because I didn't even realise I'd been vaccinated. I thought she was applying the uh, sterile solution, and in fact, she'd already vaccinated me and finished by the time I worked out what happened. So it was all over in about four or five minutes, and we were on our way. And uh, I thought it was astonishingly well organised, and it had the feel. And I know this will think people will think this is a bonkers comparison. But it had exactly the feel of going to the of being in London during the Olympics, and the people administering the vaccine, the people doing the registration, the marshals. And bear in mind, it was minus four when we went at half past five on uh, Wednesday. Sorry, Wednesday evening. Um, it felt like the, the London Olympics and the games makers. It had that air of collaborative joy almost, and in what has been a real bugger of a year uh this was definitely a high spot and it was extremely pleasant experience and i do not believe i would have I'd ever thought i would say that about having a vaccination that's fantastic to hear thank you have you had any side effects at all uh yes i have and i wouldn't underestimate those so i was fine all, all in the hours after the vaccination and suddenly when I went to sleep, uh, I've woken up with a bit of a sore arm and I do feel really rather tired. Um, and um, I'm, I feel sluggish and a bit like I'd like to crawl under the duvet and, uh, and you know, go into hibernation. But I was told that was quite likely and I believe that the, the symptoms passed within 24, 48 hours. So I'm not, you know, a, a, judged against the possible alternative this is absolutely fine excellent very pleased to hear that okay i'm going to move us on uh we've got about 10 minutes left so i just wanted to return to something we've talked about quite often uh which is trade between the uk and the eu uh both gb to eu and gb to northern ireland uh, we have seen some interesting developments since we last spoke um a bit of a spat uh between the uk and the eu uh focused or at least uh, the, the consequences of which have, have particularly applied to Northern Ireland. Um, we know that there continue to be issues uh, with the new trading arrangements, both to the mainland continent of Europe and to Northern Ireland. And we also know that, there, uh, that this is not yet the final state of our trading relationship, that there are several uh, deadlines approaching in the next few months which will see changes which will make trading indeed more difficult. And I really just wanted to get your assessment of where we're at, uh, what you think will happen, uh, and just perhaps to remind our listeners of, of the, in a very uh, top-line sense, of what the changes that are coming down the line are. Well, I think we, I think we, 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 are, we need to be very clear that the uh, settled trading status and arrangements between both the UK and the EU and GB and Northern Ireland, are, we certainly haven't reached the end state yet. We haven't reached uh, cruising altitude, if I can put it that way, um, in, on either of those relationships. Um, I think uh, we're going to see some pretty significant changes uh, in a number of waves, I'm afraid, coming down the track. And one of my concerns would be that if you are an importer and an exporter, and you're doing business with uh, the EU and in Northern Ireland, you face potentially f a further four, five or six 
uh, different changes in the rest of this year on top of the two or three that you've already seen. And I think that's that's extremely difficult for businesses to bear. And I think it is having a big impact. So we think that, that and this is uh, a kind of figure entirely drawn from anecdotal experience and uh, the work of our colleagues in the ports and in the uh, haulage industry. Uh, I think food exports to the EU are down 60% uh, in the last month. I think that's a combination of much heavier stockpiling than I had, uh, to be honest, realised. I think quite a lot of people have put three or four months stock the other side of the channel. Um, and I think that's an important point to bear in mind. I don't think we really had got that impression from members, but I think that is what's happened. And I think a lot of members are also making uh, both strategic and highly tactical decisions about whether they can or can't afford to send product uh, and find that it gets stuck at the port, stuck in the customs process, and ends up either being wasted or arriving late with a customer who then says, no, thank you very much. So I think those, those two effects have suppressed uh, exports significantly um, and may continue to do so. And I think there will be a reckoning on all of this at some point in February, March, probably late March when we get the figures. And I think we'll see there's a very significant downturn in EU uh, in exports to the EU. Coming down the track are changes uh, on the import regime from the EU. So the UK has not implemented that yet. They've waived products through at the ports and they will continue to do that until the beginning of April when, and then again in July, where there are major changes to the way in which the UK expects to uh, deal with food imported to the UK, food and drink imported to the UK. And I think it's very important that members uh, and others listening to this get outside of those changes, get, make sure that they really understand what's about to happen. And I'm afraid that means more form filling, it means more documentation, it means more interaction with customs agents and the whole paraphernalia of importing food that as we currently do from other parts of the world is about to be imposed on uh, UK exports, uh, UK imports from the EU. Uh, turning to Northern Ireland, uh, that continues to be a big concern for us. Um, it, it simply isn't working properly. Uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol became the source of a major spat, as you say, between the EU and the UK over the vaccine uh, supply and some utter idiot in the EU Commission uh, decided to invoke Article 16, which in effect sets aside the provisions of the Northern Ireland Protocol, the very thing for which the EU had castigated the UK for even thinking of doing it um, before Christmas. And it's put into play at a political level rather than a technical level, the whole question of how the Northern Ireland Protocol works. And that is a deeply, deeply stupid thing for uh, whoever it was in the Commission to have done, um, because it has essentially ignited, they've lit the blue touch paper and ignited all the tensions in both communities, both the unionist and the nationalist Republican community, about the protocol. And today, uh, as we're recording this, we've read uh, an article by James Forsyth, the editor of The Spectator, 
who is extremely well connected in government. His wife is Allegra Stratton, the Prime Minister's chief spokesperson. He's the editor of the Tory in-house journal, effectively. Uh, and James has written a piece where he says that ministers are considering a law that says if you put a product in on the market in uh, Great Britain, that you might have that you would be compelled to make it available in Northern Ireland. Well, it's only credible that they're going to do such a stupid thing uh, in the context of themselves, the UK government itself abrogating Article 16 of, of the protocol and in effect breaking an international treaty. Um, I can't imagine a more foolish thing to do on either side than, than getting into this Article 16 row. Um, the EU deserves to be very, very, very uh, heavily criticised for its decision to even think about doing that. And the British government would be the same. And the difficulty that would happen is that, uh, is that we would be breaching an international treaty. Uh, that is a matter of law. We would be doing that. The UK government cannot set aside a treaty that it has, uh, that it has entered in good faith without uh, a series of, of specific processes. Uh, that would incur undoubtedly the significant wrath of uh, President Biden, who is himself, of course, Irish from the Republic. Um, and it would inevitably mean the collapse of the, uh, of the Assembly because uh, it seems very unlikely that if the UK government did that, the, uh, the nationalist Republican community would be prepared to continue to support the, uh, the Assembly. And I think, you know, that is... That is the beginning of a very, very serious situation. It's also, incidentally, a major difficulty for international businesses because if they traded in, if they were trading in Northern Ireland in breach of uh, those treaty and, and recognising, in effect, the breaching of those treaty obligations, they would be liable to prosecution under the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act in the United States. And I think it would probably have very serious implications for all of our international businesses. Um, all of our American businesses who would find it very difficult to break, uh, to, 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 do, to do, to trade. I'm pretty sure President Biden would impose sanctions uh, of some sort, and I think it would cause massive difficulty. So what needs to happen now is that the tension and pressure needs to be taken out of the situation. Uh, we need a, a very speedy negotiation between Commissioner Sefcovich and Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster Gove to come up with an enduring uh, period of, of easements to Northern Ireland, followed by a renegotiation of the actual trading arrangements. But if we could get to a point where the current arrangements stay in place or arrangements, special arrangements, stay in place till 20, the end of next year, 2022, or some point next year, that would take the pressure off. And then hopefully the government and the EU, possibly brokered by the Americans, could get around the table and agree a a permanent settlement because the current arrangements clearly don't work and food is not flowing in the right way to Northern Ireland. Ian, thank you very much for that. It sounds like we have several more bumpy months ahead in our trade with the EU, but I think we're all feeling uplifted by your experience yesterday, both in terms of mass testing and your own vaccination. That That's very, very uplifting. And I, uh, it's interesting you invoke the spirit of London 2012, which I remember very well, and that, and that was an extraordinary national spirit and let's hope that as more and more people get vaccinated and the program is progressing at a fantastic rate uh, let's hope that that spirit spreads because we could all do with a bit of that Ian, well, Tim, I just, uh, if i could just say i think we should uh, i think 
one thing we can say to all of our members is that they should be encouraging uh, testing. Uh, and they, if they need help on how the testing will work or what you need, they should contact us because we are very heavily engaged in, uh, in trying to roll testing out to the food and drink manufacturing community. I know the government, I know DEFRA has a, an aspiration that three quarters of people working in food and drink manufacturing will be tested or will at least have a, a route to being tested by Easter. Um, and we're going to be very heavily supportive of of that uh, of that initiative. And if you need more details, please uh, contact uh, us at FDF, and we can point you in the right direction. Indeed, we can. Thank you for that, Ian. Uh, we will be back with our fortnightly issues update for members. That's a webinar on Wednesday, the seventeenth of February, at ten a.m. And Ian and I will be back for another podcast the week after that. Uh, Ian, thank you for your time today and goodbye. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.